The word was made flesh in order that we might be made gods. Just as the Lord putting on the body became a man, so also we men are both deified through his flesh, and henceforth inherit everlasting life. This quote from Athanasius summarizes the importance of the Incarnation for Athanasius and for Christians in general. This week on A History of Christian Theology, we dig into the concept of atonement and the work on the Incarnation from Athanasius. I'm your host, Chad Kim. With me this week, as usual, are my co-hosts, Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. We spent a good deal of time this week looking at Athanasius' unique view of the atonement, which is known as deification or theosis. In the episode, we compare his views to those of John Calvin, Martin Luther, and Anselm of Canterbury, who have all made significant contributions to the idea of justification, which most of our audience will be familiar with. Although the view of deification is not unheard of in the West, it is primarily known as the view of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Please stick around for this great discussion. Also, it would really help us out if you would rate us and review us on iTunes. Just search for History of Christian Theology, pull up our podcast, and give us a quick click for how you like the podcast. Also, we've had questions slowly trickling in, and we'll continue to air our responses to those questions. Now on to Athanasius. We're reading Athanasius's On the Incarnation. Uh, it's an early work written around the time of the Council of Nicaea, which we've discussed. We didn't really talk about Athanasius's biography or as an individual when we did the previous podcast, which basically talks about the life of Anthony, because the focus there was more on Anthony and the birth of monasticism than on Athanasius as a person. And this treatise um, is probably his most famous treatise, um, it's where he discusses divinization, this uh, theosis, this really um, uh, Eastern concept of, of atonement, uh, of how salvation works. Athanasius is known as the, like, sort of the father of Scripture. He's the first one to write uh, 20, the list of the 27 New Testament books that we have. Um, that was in 367. Um, he's recognized in all the churches as, um, as a church father, as a, as a doctor of the church. He's um, he went into exile several times for his stance on the Trinity. Um, after Constantine, there were a few Arian emperors uh, who exiled him. Um, so this guy is just a, a towering figure in theology. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so we're going to read this. We're, we read this piece that, that speaks about the incarnation and exactly sort of why the incarnation happens, how the incarnation happens. And, um, he has this famous line where he says, um, God became man so that man might become God. Um, and, and for a lot of people, that's like one of the major takeaways uh, of this essay, although that's towards the end. So we'll get to that a little later. Uh, but um, yeah, I guess. Before we, but before we launch into whatever question you're about to ask, I'd like to really quickly just add some stuff on the exile stuff. That's or on okay. what you said about the exiles really quickly, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, for me, I've always been one of those guys super fascinated with Athanasius. And it's all rooted in kind of the history of his life and the history of what's going on in the empire. So I would like to just take a second to kind of emphasize for our listeners uh, just the importance. Um, last week, we talked about the Nicene Creed. Was it last week or was it the week before? Two, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Nicene Creed. And we talked about this division that happened in the empire where you had um, this contingent in the church that was arguing that Jesus was not fully God, but was a created being, the Arians. And it seemed like the, you know, this orthodox position of Jesus being co-eternal with the father, Jesus being of 
one in essence with the Father, had won the day because of the Council of Nicaea. The Nicene Creed made it law. I mean, church law and really law law because Constantine, he really wanted to make sure that there was unity in the church. So anybody who wasn't on board was out. But the problem was there were a lot of closet Arians, most notably Eusebius of Nicomedia, who Constantine hired as his personal tutor for his children. And so when Constantine dies, what's going to happen is is his sons are going to grow up and take over the empire. And one of them, Constantius Jr., Constantius II in particular, was an Arian. And in the eastern half of the empire, he imposed Arianism. So Arianism actually becomes the law of the land. And so I find it interesting, a couple of points. Chad already said that Athanasius was exiled a number of times. I actually don't know the exact number. It's like seven. Five is, five is the standard number, but I think it's five, a little hard. Sorry, five. Um, and he was exiled under Constantine. Even though, he, even though he was Trinitarian and Orthodox, he was exiled under Constantine because he was a, a, problem, uh, a problem child. He was a guy who stirred up issues because he was so anti-Arianism that he would like call out all of these closet Arians and demand they'd be removed. And Constantine finally had enough, so he exiled him. But Athanasius had so many supporters that they would bring him back only to be exiled again, especially once Constantius becomes emperor and he is, uh, and Arianism becomes the law of the land. And the thing is, it's at that moment that Athanasius becomes this staunch defender of the Orthodox faith. So historically, people look at Athanasius as like the defender of the faith, the guy who said, I'm going to stand up in spite of everything that's going on in the culture, in spite of the fact that the empire is becoming Arian and everybody is embracing this false doctrine, I'm going to stand for the truth that Jesus is God, that he is co-eternal with the Father, that he's of the same essence. I'm going to stand up for the Nicene Creed. And it inspired people to say about him that he was Athanasius contra mundum, which in Latin means Athanasius against the world. And so for me, he's always been a very inspiring character. And it's wonderful that, of course, when Theodosius ascends to the imperial throne and establishes finally once and for all uh, the Orthodox Catholic faith as the faith of the empire, the Council of Constantinople is established, which affirms the Nicene Creed. When that is done, Arianism, for all intents and purposes, is done, it's illegal, it's out of the empire, and it will dwindle down to nothing, uh, not to reappear until actually modern times. Uh, You find it today, Jehovah's Witnesses and so forth. Well, in a way, actually, the barbarians are actually, um, well, what are called the barbarians, and I'm using this term as in non-Greek or uh, Latin-speaking peoples in the north, the Germanic barbarians are actually Aryans. Um, and That's for, I apologize. There's a there's another major. I forgot about that. There's this uh, influx of German barbarians who hold to the Aryan position after Theodosius, and then they the Germans will go through their own kind of battle like this. Of course, uh, the Frankish king um, Clovis will convert to Catholic Christianity. And that will be a major marker. That's right. Anyway, I've weren't some still that. Aryan as well in the Far East after. So no, there's a different. There's a, no. There's a. We'll talk about um, in 451 um, in the Acts of talk about the differences uh, that they hold to exactly how Christ is fully God and fully man. Oh. Uh, But that's a different position. Actually, it's a missionary that's sent out during this period that actually um, evangelizes to the barbarians 
um, as and and they become Aryan. Um, so it's, yeah, but a lot of that 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 history will become more important uh, more towards the middle of the fifth uh, century and then the sixth century. Um, and yeah, as Tom said, then they're converted actually from Arianism to Trinitarian theology. And one point I think that Tom was making without saying it that's sort of interesting about Athanasius is, you know, sometimes people will say that Constantine, like, and I said this a little bit, like we talked a little bit about the politics of Nicaea, but if it was purely a case of imperial power that set orthodoxy, then it would seem that uh, that uh, that there it should have been Arianism in the period of Athanasius, and so Athanasius also stands for this like sort of the triumph of what we believe to be the truth and the proper interpretation of Scripture um, as Orthodox thinkers, um, and this goes against what was the position of the of the empire uh, in under Constantius. So there's there's several decades of um, imperial power pushing Arianism, and Athanasius resists that. Um, and I think that's part of what Tom uh, is getting at in terms of, you know, just how important he is, um, even to maybe even to counter some of the, the, the narratives that say that orthodoxy is merely about political power, because clearly um, Athanasius' story proves that it's not as simple as that. That's such a good point, especially in light of what was kind of a main point brought up when we were talking about Nicaea is just how political it was. I mean, I think we were trying to be fair <clears throat> to that. But if people interpret Nicaea and Orthodox Trinitarianism as only political or even as primarily political, then they've missed the point. Um, Because, and as Trinitarians, as Orthodox Trinitarians, our hero should be Athanasius, not Constantine. Like, Athanasius is the defender of the faith. Athanasius was not doing this for political reasons. He is the anti-political guy. He didn't, he was, like I said, even Constantine himself banished Athanasius because Athanasius was such a fighter for truth. I mean, he was convicted of the truth of this, of this doctrine and he fought for it (coughs) and was vindicated. Um, But Chad's right. If it was just political, Arianism would have won there in the middle of the fourth century or again, later in the, uh, in the mid fifth century when the Germanic kingdoms are taking over and the Germanics, the Germanic kingdoms are Arian. Like, at the end of the day, Orthodox Catholic Trinitarianism won out, and it won out by means that were not traditional political power plays. Um, well, I have a, I had a few questions. Uh, some of them get a little bit more difficult than others. Um, I should, I guess, I sort of summarize. The main point of this text is basically to defend why um, Jesus. Uh, well, why the word had to become flesh uh, in order to bring back not only humanity um, into uh, into relationship with God, but and and I will say I think he's actually arguing for all of creation um, to come back into harmony with God, and that's part of what happens. Um, so that's basically the thrust of this text, and you know he he goes through a few different reasons why God would first allow. Um, humanity to suffer death in the first place, um, and then why God in his goodness uh, sent his son, uh, sent the word to become Jesus Christ, sent his son to become Jesus Christ uh, in the flesh um, in order to rescue humanity from death. And and as I said, Athanasius sums this up in this phrase, um, 
God became man so that man might become God. And, 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 or, and, and, and actually not even God, the word is divinized. So he becomes like God. And so I think we get, we've discussed divinization a little bit, uh, but we, I think that's just a major point that we have to get to here um, because for Athanasius, this is how it all holds together. This is why it's so important that Jesus isn't just created by God, but is very God um, so that we might have proper harmony with God. Um, and so, you know, I guess I'll just start there um, and then and then I'll work to some other questions that I thought we could discuss about Athanasius. So what of this theosis, this this view of salvation um, that isn't it isn't justification, uh, as Martin Luther uh, will talk about, or even to some degree, as as um, Augustine defines it. Um, this is this is more um, this is looks a little bit different. So um, I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts? Uh, the the this particular phrase comes in chapter fifty four. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Thoughts on the the divinization piece? Um. I mean, my take was, because it's kind of my first take, uh, I've never read this before, um, and without much even background on the doctrine, I I am really coming at it fresh. I saw it as his way of saying, essentially, that when we were created, we had um, the gift of... Yamago Day, like we became, which means image bearer, like we became made in the image of God. And uh, he, it seems like he equates it to rationality, is the way he puts it, like we were given a rational nature. Um, and that was the image of God in us. And he says essentially that, you know, we fell in the garden and that uh, we were going toward the corruptible and to, toward non-existence is how he puts it, um, which, by the way, makes me think that it, it kind of reminds me of annihilationism, maybe. But anyway, that's something else I might, might bring up later. But um, they we're going towards non-existence, and the image essentially is being uh, effaced within us, and that Christ came so that that image can be restored in us, and that was the, the theosis doctrine from my understanding. Um, one thing I would want to make sure everybody's real clear on, and we've talked about this before because we've talked about theosis before. Probably was that with Irenae Irenaeus mentions theosis. Yeah. Just again, a point of clarification that when, when Athanasius says that the son of God became man or God became man so that man might become God. Very, very important. That does not mean that we are becoming the eternal creator of all things or nor is it an Eastern view. Like we're becoming one with God. That is, we are part of God in, in the, in the sense that God is in a pantheistic sense. He is talking about what, what Trevor just brought up a, a transformation within us. And it's all rooted in the image of God. We're created as reflectors of God, mirror images, so to speak of God. And that mirror image has been marred because of sin. And so Christ has come to restore us to our first and proper place. And so salvation just is us becoming more like God. That's what it means. Like we become, I mean, it's, it's, it, you can think of the language in the New Testament that we are conformed into the image of Christ, meaning we are made more and more like him. And, and you can think of it in terms of 
what it means to properly be a human, right? Um, having said that, I would like to add something, Chad. You, you said that this is not the language of justification and Martin Luther. And I want to contend with you slightly on that, only slightly. It's true that that's not. But what struck me by this work is that Athanasius seems to provide a, um, almost like a, a seed for just about every view of the atonement I ever have come across. I mean, he gives more than just the theosis view. He talks about a lot of different things. And there's one here that is in chapter six, I believe, that strikes me as sounding very much like penal substitution, which is what Martin Luther and John Calvin will espouse. And I only want to stop here and make sure everybody understands that if you grew up in an evangelical or fundamentalist church of some sort, you probably are most familiar with what people call the penal substitutionary atonement, which means that you have committed a crime against God's law and you are guilty and worthy of judgment, but that Jesus as the innocent came and stood and with and basically took upon himself the judgment that was rightfully due to you so that you wouldn't have to endure it. That's more or less the penal substitution. It's one that I think has is fraught with lots of problems. I mean, I, I admit that. Chad and I, and I don't know if I've talked about it as much with Trevor, have talked extensively about it. At the same time, it seems to me that in intellectual circles, people really tend to kind of poo-poo it and just kind of say, eh, it's, it's stupid. They're, whatever the atonement is, it's not that. Um, but it does, I think, have a root in some really important writers in the church and it certainly is tied to many different statements in Scripture, whether or not it's an accurate reflection of what the Scripture says. Um, but here, I do think we have Athanasius kind of hitting on something that almost sounds like a, a penal substitutionary atonement. It's not explicit, but I want to hit on a couple things. So in section 6, around chapter uh, 2, he says, For death, as I said above, gained from that time forth a legal hold over us. And it was impossible to evade the law since it had been laid down by God because of the transgression. And the result was in truth at once monstrous and unseemly. So he says, God set a law. We broke the law. The punishment that God declared was death. So we are basically, we're screwed. We are under death because of the violation of the law. He will carry on in chapter 7. And this is where I felt like there was a almost a hint of sub, penal substitution. It's in section 5. He says, for his it was once more, both to bring the corruptible to incorruption and to maintain intact, and here we go, the just claim of the Father upon all. For being the word of the Father above all, he alone of natural fitness was both able to recreate everything and worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to be an ambassador for all with the Father. So the, the key thing that I want to emphasize here is, he says there's a just claim of the Father upon the punishable, or on those who on us, those who are to be punished. And Jesus' punishment, or the, 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 uh, Jesus' death, enables the Father to, to, to be just, to have his just claim of death without us dying. That's what it sounds like. Now, again, he gives lots of different views of the atonement, and I hope we talk about many others. But this one struck me as being a seed of what will become kind of the penal substitutionary atonement that will develop a lot in the reformers with Calvin and Luther. Thoughts? Yeah, so I highlighted the same passage. Well said, Tom. Um, and, and I think, you know, I was actually struck by it in the same way that you are. Um, at, at some point, we will also get to Anselm. Uh, Anselm of Canterbury writes this work called Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. 
um, which is a in a lot of ways, there's a lot of similarities to De Incarnazione, to On the Incarnation. Um, and that's where, um, that's kind of where Calvin and uh, Luther, that's one of their major uh, sources in addition to Augustine, to Augustine. Uh, but, uh, but one thing that I wanted to say that's interesting here versus where, um, where it's rooted in Calvin and even Anselm, uh, so the, the sentence begins for Athanasius in chapter 6, for death gained from that time forth a legal hold over us. So the person holding the, 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 um, the rights over us is actually death, not God himself. Um, and so there, there will become, and the general understanding of the early church position is a ransom. It's actually that, that Satan and death hold up. Uh, the the sinners um, and that Jesus Christ comes to rescue us actually from death um, or from Satan and the the reason that a lot of contemporary theologians have a problem with penal substitutionary atonement is because Jesus has to rescue us from God Himself. Now it might seem like splitting hairs, and I could almost feel Tom's response to this, <laughs> but I should point out uh, that that so. Um, that is the way that most of the early churches understood is this ransom theory, that it's actually death that holds us, not God himself. Um, and, and that becomes problematic because they'll, they'll call it in some, some, sometimes it's called divine child abuse, uh, where God is so angry that God has to kill his own son because of God's own wrath. Um, and I think that, you know, I think there's some problems with saying that, but, but anyway, so yes, it's very similar to, uh, F, uh, to Anselm, but, there is 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 that a fair um dif- difference well i think you're right it definitely does address of course the power of death and you certainly see that elsewhere in this text i mean he definitely talks about death and the devil holding us in certain ways but i would just draw your attention back to what i read before at that at the end of chapter 7 where he says in that that this is to maintain intact the just claim of the father upon all. So it doesn't seem that he abandons the idea that there is a sense in which God also uh, kind of holds this over us. And one way I've thought about this, because I tend to hold, I I don't, if people ask me what view of the atonement do you hold, I would say all of them. I mean, I feel like when I read the different works on the atonement, it seems to me that there are ways that they all like seem to reflect, uh, real realities of the human experience. And I shouldn't say all of them. I'm sure there are some weird ones out there. But I mean, the, the common ones that I read about, I, I, I find whenever I learn a new theory of the atonement, usually I'm, I, I feel like I'm enlightened to something new about God and, and about man. But maybe I could illustrate kind of my thoughts on it this way. I, I'm a teacher. So as a teacher, of course, I give assignments, I give grades, and I have rules in my classroom. If a rule is violated... I'm compelled to to give the prescribed punishment. Like it, it's something that is compelled within me. Now I'm just doing this by metaphor. This is going to bring up a whole host of problems. Like people would say, for instance, well, God can't be compelled, or His rules flow from His nature, and things of that nature. I I, I can't really. I know there's a lot we could talk on in this, but I, I only know that as a teacher, I have rules that I lay down, and I have to be fair with them. And if one guy violates the rules, then, and I punish him, then if another guy violates the rules, I have to punish him in the same way that the first student did, right? If I don't, then I'm unfair. 
And so I've often thought of it in this sense that could kind of create a, uh, a way in which it's God's just claim and it's Satan's in a sense. Satan sinned, Satan fell, God punished Satan. This was God's justice that demanded this. God creates man that he loves. Man falls also. If God does not proclaim a judgment on man, which comes from his nature and from his character, then he could be unjust for not doing that, especially in the light of the fact that another has been punished. And so in my mind, I could see, like, let's say, go back to my metaphor, a student A violates rule one, student B violates rule one, if I punish student A, then student B is under both me and student A in a sense. Like, I have to be faithful to the rule and to justice, but student B or student A also is demanding the justice. He's demanding because he himself experienced the justice. So I'm not saying this resolves all the problems. I'm saying this is one metaphoric way that I've thought about it that, that does make it a little, it doesn't just automatically make it divine child abuse. This is something I'm kind of passionate about because I uh, I remember a while back I was listening to a podcast, which it was a good podcast. I don't know if it's around anymore, but it was uh, Theologues yeah. is what it was called. And yeah, it was a around. roundtable discussion and uh, on theological topics. And they were discussing the atonement. And all it ended up being was, and again, I, I like the podcast, so I'm not trying to criticize uh, these guys. But and in fact, in the show, they acknowledge this over and over again. But it was just them basically beating up the penal substitutionary atonement theory. There was nobody there who was a penal sub- who believed in it, and and they, in my mind, it seemed that they used a lot of straw man arguments. And there are ways I think you can look at it where it it doesn't fall prey to the divine child abuse criticism or something along those lines. Anyway, just some thoughts, and it seems to me that there is that bit there where he says that it's the just claim of the Father, so it does kind of put some of it on God, not just on death or the devil. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're and, and like I said, it's, it's a little hard to not read this in light of sort of the centuries of theology that have come after it, um, but I am trying to, you know, we, we have been trying to understand it from, from Athanasius' perspective. But it, I think it's helpful um, because many of us already have uh, sort of our theological, tr- like, what, where, you know, however much we've been in church or in various types of situations where we're reading about this, we have some of these lenses. And so it's important to compare them uh, to the lenses that we already have. And it should also be said that, you know, we, we talk a lot about orthodoxy in this podcast and usually orthodoxy for us, um, sort of mere orthodoxy, if you like, is pretty much summed up, summed up in the Nicene and Constantinople creed. And then sort of the, the combination of um, the Acts of Chalcedon, which we'll get to in the 5th century, where uh, Jesus Christ is said fully God and fully man. So basically you've got the Nicene creed and fully God and fully man. Typically these statements, uh, these creeds, are the foundation of what Orthodox Christianity is. And none of them explicitly state exactly how we are unified to God, how we are um, restored in relationship with God. They don't, so, which is all to say, there isn't technically an Orthodox view of how the atonement works, how, hu- how humans uh, who deserve death because of sin um, are properly brought back into relationship with God. Um, 
you know, basically we, we, we leave it in a way to mystery. Um, lots of these theories come sort of after uh, uh, the, the creeds are sort of finalized. And, and you know, so anyway, so I, th- I think we should point out that it, it, at, least, um, at least in terms of the creeds, the creeds don't explicitly state how this happens. Um, and so I think it could be fair to say that uh, there isn't one uh, orthodox view in a very mere orthodoxy or strict orthodoxy way. Most uh, Eastern, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox have a view of theosis. Um, many Protestants have this view of, you know, justification um, through through faith, um, and uh, we are given Christ's righteousness, this imputed righteousness. I mean, really, this comes from Luther, but it's basically imbibed um, by broader Protestant tradition. But what is this? I have a question. Is this still connected to theosis, though? Because I've even heard in your general church that on one day is talking about penal substitution, like some non-denominational church. I've heard them then also in discussions of the image of God talk about how uh, the purpose of Christ coming is to restore the image of God in us. So is it intimately linked? Is it still maintained throughout all traditions? I think that's where all these different atonement views do tie together. I mean, or sorry, I think that's where kind of what I was saying earlier about how when people ask me what atonement theory do I ascribe to, I say all of them. I mean, I feel like a lot of people do but then you get people kind of drawing lines in the sand right. and saying, no, but I'm a penal substitutionary guy. But it's like, do you really deny theosis? I don't think so. I mean, because yeah, well, that'd be you? weird to deny it. Yeah. I, it seems to me that actually most of the views out there are generally accepted by, uh, I shouldn't say that. Penal substitutionary atonement seems to be the one that people really, that certain groups really do draw a line in the sand and say that's not it. Um I guess those who hold the penal substitutionary though deny the ransom to Satan thing because they they want to make it God. So there is there are lines in the sand for sure. Hey Chad, real quick, did you have a response though, really quickly about that the just claim of the Father upon all? Like, do you have a thought on that? I, I mean, I would just state it. Um, yeah, I mean, so there there are different even views about how the ransom theory works. <laughs> um, uh-huh. and so, so I think. I think even people who sort of ascribe to the ransom theory or to maybe in my way to explain Athanasius, I think there's some sort of like ultimate sense in which God sort of establishes law, um, but that he sort of allows death to have the claim. Um, and, And so it's sort of like maybe in some ultimate sense, yes, it is due to the father because the father sort of establishes, um, law um and then sort of says okay death you have death and satan you now have control um of them because they've transgressed the law that's part of the established order Hmm. does that make sense so maybe like you know and i i think maybe where i would say the difference might lie for um for especially for calvin and to some degree anselm um, is that they don't want the devil to have any power whatsoever, and so that it's just focused purely on God and God's self as the judge and the one who um, who's doing all of the controlling. So, you know, maybe Athanasius would say, yeah, yeah, yeah sort of in some general sense, God um, established this law, uh, but then he sort of gave this power to Satan. And I, I don't think, you know, Calvin would even want to give that much power to Satan. 
Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think, I mean, I think it's a good response. I, and I, fair, well, well said in terms of your point of like really, really couching the penal substitutionary atonement view in Luther and Calvin. I would qualify though and say that I do think that the language of substitution is, and imputation is definitely present in both the Old and New Testament. And so I could see how somebody could draw that. I mean, when you look at the Old Testament sacrifices, like you think about the Day of Atonement, there's this, there's the appearance. I mean, not just the appearance. There is the stated fact of the bull or the goat being a substitute for you in some sense, right? And yeah. of course, Romans chapter four uses the term imputation uh, of sin and righteousness and so forth. So that language is in the scripture. So it's not as if the language itself comes out of Luther and Calvin, but a fully fleshed out theology of it, as far as I know, doesn't come until Luther and Calvin. All right. So here was my other question that's related to this. So we'll take, we'll take one step in a slightly different direction. So the whole time that I'm reading this, and this is also a question that I have of Calvin in general, and I did a little bit of work on this in a paper um, at the end of last semester, but okay. So I'll start out asking the question this way, and then and then I'll I'll try to draw in the connections. But is Athanasius a universalist? Okay, so why do I ask that? Let me. I'm going to read a quote from chapter 19. But this basically is, I think, is sort of latent throughout 17, 18, 19. But he says in 19, for he made even the creation break silence, and that even at his death, marvelous to relate. Um, it's great Greek rhetorical piece, Um, or rather at his actual trophy over death, the cross, I mean, all creation was confessing that he was made manifest and suffered in the body was not man merely, but the son of God and savior of all. Uh, Even go on. He uses this language of all God is uh, Christ is the savior of all Christ died for all Christ made it. So all this seemed well for the savior. I mean, it all comes up a lot. So, I would first say, do you think that he's a universalist? Well, I would say no, because he mentions hell, and I'm looking for it now. I don't think I underlined it, but he actually says, he talks about the fires of hell at the end regarding judgment, and I just, but I didn't mark it because I, it was something that wasn't on the forefront of my mind in this, in this reading. It is weird, though, yeah, because the 19 does end with, this is the sum of our faith, and all men, without exception, are full of it. And he's, that's him talking about um, the, uh, yeah, the redemption. The resurrection. God. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so okay. So I don't necessarily think he's a universalist either. But here's my here's where I was going with that. Like, okay, so one, he says all a lot. I think he's this whole thing is sort of a general view of how Christ saves the church and how Christ saves Christians. But there's no individual like, okay, so if I rec- like, what is my relationship to what's going on? And this to me is maybe a key turn in the Reformation and maybe even a key element of the West is – how am I made a partaker in this? And that's where the imputed righteousness seems really important to me in the Western tradition is 
Athanasius is almost unaware that there's like an an individual in this. Like there's no, I don't see anywhere where you would go, okay, how do I get this theosis? How do I become a partaker in this? How do I become part of Christ's resurrection of the body? It's not mentioned. There's not really a discussion of repentance. There's not really a discussion of baptism. There's not really a discussion of, you know, how, how is it that I gain hold of this? And like where I, when I grew up, we talked about the free gift. You have to accept the free gift. Um, you know, that's sort of like how you become a Christian, how you are given the righteousness. You have to have the faith um, to receive this righteousness, which he doesn't exactly discuss. It's just like it's just sort of like uh, it's very broad. And I think that he's speaking in these very communal terms, which I think is interesting or maybe I'm misreading it. Uh, but I didn't see anywhere where it specifically said, OK, how do I as an individual sort of initiate this transaction so that I can become part of the resurrection? Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Oh, by the way, I finally found it. Um, chapter 56, he does say. There is laid up for the good, the kingdom of heaven, but for them that have done evil, everlasting fire and outer darkness. For thus the Lord also says, henceforth ye shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven in glory of the Father. So he does say everlasting fire and outer darkness is reserved. He, of course, you know, says for those who do evil. I mean, so again, to your point, it's not like he's bringing up a solid doctrine of of salvation, baptism, I mean, all those things, you know what I mean? But he says, for those who do evil, everlasting fire and outer darkness. So, I mean, what do you, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm also sort of asking two questions. So who is this for and how do you make it for? And ultimately, I think this might be a, a substantial difference between like what we see in the Reformation and what we see here. It's not actually about an individual. It's just sort of for those in the church already, I think. And that's sort of the all that he's referencing is sort of all the faithful. Because he doesn't mean elect, though, either, right? So he's not yeah. he's not talking about predestination. Not at all. Not ever. Not once. You know, and he says without exception, which is the thing that really makes me think he's actually using the word all in the normal way. Like you can't limit that word. So, I mean, is this just, but is this just atonement? Like, is he merely subscribing not to limited atonement? Unlimited atonement? Well, that's not a thing. I mean, yeah, I don't, I mean, the notion of limited unlimited atonement is just something nobody's talked about at any point. But is that kind of, is that what he's maybe referring to though? Well, so here, I mean, here's the other element, again, which I think is substantially different between Reformed and then his view, too, is, as Tom quoted, whether you do good or do evil. Um, so the, the last judgment is still a thing that happens at the end. So even at, in whatever way we are initiated into this becoming like God, we are then part of our becoming like God is our actions. And it's sort of an inseparable thing. So part of this theosis is also part of the way that we then act um, as a result of our engagement in um, this becoming like God. And I think this is a point 
that this is how I read Augustine uh, verse differently than how the reformers read Augustine is I think Augustine has a similar idea, um, although expressed differently. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I think there is this question. So judgment is still at the end. Um, and at the end, is there sort of evidence that you have been changed? Um, and that's what the judgment is. Yeah, because merely by Christ's death, we do not, in his view, just are automatically restored to the image of God. There seems to be a, a process more than it is. It's not just Christ died, and so our image is automatically restored. So yeah. So I, I think I'm, I'm lost on your question because I was looking for that quote. Okay. And so what are you asking? I guess. Well, I'm just so I'm asking two questions, and I still don't have one answer. I'm not exactly sure how this re- rest of the process begins for Athanasius. Like, so theosis is this doctrine; it is what he believes. It is how man, generally speaking, is be- the re- image of God is restored in him. But so, but how is it that me, as an individual? How is it that the the theosis begins in me? Like, how is would Athanasius? Po- yeah. Is it possible that he just assumes you know that? That's what I assumed when reading this. It's almost, I mean, he's writing this certainly towards people who call themselves Christians. And so, I, I've, I mean, I'm, this isn't an answer per se. It's just what I assumed is, is that he made the fundamental assumption that you know what this is and that, now he's addressing you as a Christian to say this. If you are in Christ, then this. Um, but I, I might be wrong on that. I mean, that's he doesn't address it. I mean, it's a fair point. He doesn't bring up faith or baptism. He addresses works, but not he doesn't address works in a particularly salvific sense. In other words, he doesn't say you need to do X, Y, and Z to be saved or anything like that. Like he's talking about works in light of the fact that, hey, we're Christians. We need to do good works like. Yeah. And, and my thinking may just be muddled, um, but I'm, I've, I've been trying to get clarity on this um, because I also it's a question that I also have for the reformers, because it seems like the reformers have a twofold view of judgment. Um, and but that's a second point. Um, and, and I don't fully under I don't fully understand. You know, I think I think actually the reformers may conflate um, the, the judgment, or it may be a question of time with God, but that, that's a whole separate issue. But with him, I'm not exactly sure. I think it is, as Tom's saying, he just, he's writing this, um, assuming that you are already part of the church. So then he's just describing to you what happens. I, I think that might be right, but this is also a point that becomes a substantial issue later in the West, um, is who, uh, it, it's, it's no, it can no longer be assumed that you are part of this process. So then that's when by faith, and this is also important for Augustine too, in his great conversion, he has to know how his faith initiates this process and ultimately grace. uh, Well, so he would also ultimately say that faith is a grace given to him by God, which begins this process. Um, And um, yeah. Well, and also he is, this is about the incarnation. So he is trying to more give a rationale for the incarnation itself. So yeah, I think everything else is just being assumed or he's just assuming that you would uh, understand some of the other things surrounding it. But it reminds me, and I can't 
find it. I can't quite recall which chapter it is, but he gives an analogy of one of the reasons for the incarnation was to protect us. And he gives us, he gives us analogy of a king in a city. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know if you remember this bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when a king enters a city, the whole city cannot be defiled by robbers and all sorts of things, because uh, even though he's staying in one house, the whole city's under his protection because the king's there. And he goes, so the same God entered a human body. So that all human bodies. And that verse, or that, <laughs> that verse, that uh, section also reminded me of kind of the language in 19. And I don't know if maybe there's a theological connection there. If he thinks by simile of a king in a city that we've received some sort of protections here on earth now, I'm not sure. I, 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 I had a hard time also understanding what he thought that meant for us. Well, he, I mean, that's, he's, uh, I think that a lot of the metaphors he uses, and he's really great at using metaphors, <laughs> yeah. are really nice in a certain way because they show how in real life you can be bonded to something or joined together to something, which is a big part of his theology. This union with Christ, this joining together with Christ of, of me as an individual, Christ in me. I, like, I mean, the way you said it is right, provides me a protection of sorts. Right. And the king in the city is one of those examples. Also the asbestos example, which I thought was really was really good. He talks about how, you know, you can take this substance that is flammable, but you cover it in asbestos and it's no longer flammable. Um, you, can, you can try to light it on fire, but it won't light. So too, we're united with Christ. And because of that, he protects us. And he protects us from lots of things. He doesn't even really address God's judgment as being the thing you're protected from. He addresses it as uh, you're protected from your sin. Like you, you overcome sin. That's a big thing for him. He talks a lot about how like when in the history of the world was it ever the case that that drunkards became non-drunkards and and um adulterers became non-adulterers. He says Christ comes in and transforms a person. And that's a huge part of what he's talking about. And actually it's a big part of his apologia. I mean his his defense of the Christian faith. He's saying, look at all the religions in the history of the world. We are the ones where when Christ comes into the life of a man, he is changed and transformed. However, where the metaphors fail is that they don't give us the actual mechanism, right? In other words, they're not helpful in actually explaining what actually is going on when Christ is bound to us. They're only helpful in showing that things can be bound to other things and thus protected. Oh, by the way, I found that it was in chapter 9. And yeah, this, this confused me, and I don't know why my mind didn't go to... Uh, my mind didn't go to universalism in the same way, but the, I'll give it kind of a quick skim. He basically says, and like when a great king has entered some large city and taken up his abode in one of the houses there, the city is at all events held worthy of a high honor, nor does any mean or bandit longer descend upon it and subject it, blah, blah, blah. And then he, then when he goes to compare it, he goes for now that he has come to our realm, that being Christ, and taken up his abode in one body among his peers, henceforth the whole conspiracy of the enemy against mankind is checked, and the corruption of death, which before was prevailing against them, is done away. For the race of men had gone to ruin, had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, come among us to meet the end of death. But that's the thing. It's so vague that it just sounds like 
anything I would hear in almost any church, though, too, at the same time. But that idea that, I mean, we are all humans, right? In the same way, like, it's one house, but the city, every, you know, house in the city is protected. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is why it's like, we're all humans. He came into a body, so all bodies should be protected from incorruptibility. But, yeah, it's it's interesting language, at least. But you have a good so what point, do we? So I like Tom's point is exactly right. A big part of his apologia is the the transformation that is supposed to occur in Christians. Um, and even the section that I was reading talking about the judgment day, um, it, a lot of it has to do with what kind of a virtuous life is lived. Um, that, that And then, you know, basically there's judgment uh, based on that virtue. Um, but I guess I would ask, what do we make of this of this apologia of transformation? I mean, you know, this is like I feel like it's sort of like when I was a kid, and you'd always like I always wanted a great testimony. Uh, but I was raised I was raised in the church. Nothing radically changed for me um, insofar as I kind of always believed it. Um, and I, you know, I didn't have some dramatic thing where I rode a motorcycle and had tattoos and um, drank a lot and, you know, did drugs and yada, yada, yada. And then all of a sudden I stopped doing drugs and I cleaned up my tattoos and I gave up my motorcycle. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm being, you know, facetious for sure. Uh, but, you know, I wanted something dramatic to, to demonstrate the difference that Christ had made. Is that a, a helpful apologia uh, for, for Athanasius? Must this be evident in the lives of Christians to know sort of that God is real? Well, I don't think it must be, but I would take the argument. I mean, I I think a Christian can certainly go through life without having that radical transformation. And often they do. I'm, I like you and and one of those, one of those guys. Um, I think rather where I find one, I do find some compelling point in this argument but i think if we really want to get down to whether or not it's a good argument we have to get to the data which he does not provide like i'm more interested in this question is it really the fact that none of those other religions ever yielded somebody who was transformed yeah right uh or and in this question too is it really the fact that all these christians are really transformed right i certainly have met a number of people that i think were christian or you know, lived really transformed lives, that they had, you know, what you called a good testimony, that they were the proverbial drug-using, you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to pigeonhole any particular thing, but you you guys all know what I'm talking about. People who and are I didn't mean to pigeonhole. I was, I was using motorcycles as a joke, mostly. I, I know. know. No, I know. No, no, no. <laughs> I know, but I didn't want to copy your joke, mm-hmm. and then I knew that whatever I was going to go to would just be some kind of pigeonholing. So... But you guys all know what I'm talking about, where you feel like you've lived this life that was hard and tough and and you regret these things you did and Jesus comes into your life and you're transformed. I've met people where that happens, tons of people. I've also met people who had that life, were baptized, professed faith in Christ, and could not find the strength to transform, right? Uh, I've seen that a lot too. And I, and I think at the same time, I think we all can attest to the fact that there are things in our lives that we want transformed and we're not seeing them transformed, right? We all have these things in our lives that we feel a great deal of guilt and shame about that we wish to repent of, and yet they're not 
just change like we would like them to be? So those are the questions that kind of swirl around my mind. And then the question of what about in a, in a religion that we would look at as not uh, being true, as being false and not having the power of Christ, right? I mean, has, has somebody gone into uh, Islam or uh, Buddhism and had a significant transformation? It seems to me that that's the case. I mean, I guess I, I, I can't offhand think of one, but I'm not involved in those communities. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. it, it, it's, I think that's where his points are a little difficult as an apologetic, um, as, as a defense of the faith. Yeah, it, is this also, like, in what way is this theosis doctrine different from just sanctification, as, you know, explained by later Protestants? Because we often talk about how, because of penal substitution, we have to talk about how you're justified by this one thing, but then throughout your life you're sanctified by the work of God, you're being set apart, which just really means, like, you do more good things and do less bad things throughout your life in a pretty simple way. So like in what way, I mean, what does it mean to be an image bearer? You know what I mean? Like what, what does it mean to be restored to the image? And he, he always conflates it with like being rational. I felt like in this text, which just made me think like what we've just become like really good philosophers or something like I just it just I don't know I was uh, it's all kind of confusing you're you're exactly right so I mean at the risk of being overly simplistic one of the major different like so Calvin is a big on on sanctification Um, so one of the major things that comes about with uh, Luther's uh, reading of of Romans is its justification by faith so Previously, justification uh, wasn't just the impute. Like, so as I read St. Augustine um, and also sort of this is also roughly through Aquinas as well. But um, justification is something that both happens in a moment and happens over time. So um, sanctification isn't necessarily this thing that happens after you are justified, which is how Calvin understands it. Um, rather you are constantly being justified by your works, um, and you cooperate with the Holy spirit to do good things, um, that will in turn justify you. Now, the question is, how do you have the power to do those good works? Are they necessary for your salvation for Luther, for Calvin there? The good works are not necessary at all. Um, faith is the only thing that is necessary. Um, and that is their reading of St. Augustine rather for Aquinas. Um, the good works are necessary for your salvation, but you have the power to do them because of the Holy Spirit in your life. Um, and there's this cooperation. Um, and, and so in theosis, it just, there really isn't an emphasis anyway on justification or sanctification. There just is this, you become more like God. Um, and that is also your, it, when judgment day comes, you will look more like God, act more like Christ, and that is your, um, that is also your entrance into heaven. Your, you know, and, and how this looking happens, um, you know, whether or not it's pure rationality, uh, which Athanasius does emphasize, or you know, whatever you consider to be a good work. I mean, you know, and and you know, there's some other questions about well. 
you know, what if um, a Christian serves at a soup kitchen and an atheist serves at a soup kitchen? Does the atheist good work um, actually get them to heaven? And medieval theologians have distinctions for this, and there's a there is a difference. But suffice it to say, um, nevertheless, uh, the the simple point is justification was a piece of sanctification. All of that was bundled up together. They weren't separate things out. They weren't parsed in the same way that Calvin parses them. And that's part of theosis as well. Um, there isn't this sort of minute, or, well, there isn't the same like ordering of time um, and, and saying justification first, then sanctification, at least as I understand his notion of theosis. And also it's, it's virtue language too, um, which is extremely, you know, important. Like you are virtuous, you are the perfect man. Um, you become, in a way you become the perfect man because Christ was the perfect man, you know, um, and that's part of virtue. Um, yeah. Right. You know, there's an enormous amount of vagueness in all of this. I mean, and this is something I seems to me the church is always wrestling with, always has been. They come up with formula to try to eliminate the vagueness, but it never really quite works, right? I mean, you talk about Aquinas saying the works are necessary, but that raises a vagueness question. What works? To what degree? How many? What? If, I mean, because unless, unless, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, there are two ways to go to, to make that concrete. You can go the perfection standard. That is how many works? All of them. Like you, they've got, it's got to be perfect. Or you can go the no work standard, none of them. But then, you know, and that's where Protestants went, essentially. That's where Luther goes. But we have the same problem because now it's, we're saved by faith. But what if a person says he has faith and has zero works? Well, the problem still arises, and the answer is, well, he doesn't have either enough faith or the right kind of faith, which means that the vagueness problem is back. Yeah. How much faith is enough faith, or what kind of faith is the right kind of faith, or you know, things of that nature. And you'll find a lot of theologians and preachers, I mean, I've seen it so many times on a Sunday morning, trying to come up with the formula that will make it, you know, this is how much, so that we all know so that there can be no concern or fear or worry of any kind. And it's, it's a, I don't know, maybe it's just a, a fact of being human. That's the vague, that's <laughs> also the vagueness in the timeline thing. And it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier, your traditional, like, conversion story of like, oh, I was doing all sorts of bad stuff, and now I'm really good. <laughs> and, like, often what's realistic is, like, this guy's just a jerk for, like, 20 years and then he finally mellows out and he says something like, God changed me. But it took 20 years. Like, he was seriously like, everyone was like, everyone would have said, yeah, that guy was just a jerk. And then later he's like, yeah, now I'm kind of chilled out and I think God helped me do this. And it's like, oh, but you were a jerk for 20 years. And it's like, <laughs> and even just being a jerk, which is still like, you know, it's not like you were off snorting cocaine off strippers or anything, but still it's like, you know, not your typical whatever sin that people talk about. It was like, but it's still something that, like, you'd think sanctification would be doing. You know what I mean? I the, and, this is why that's I, all a fair point. I don't think Tom was necessarily trying to attack me in specific. I think he was offering a general point that no, I totally no. agree with. Um, no, I was trying to agree with him in the vagueness of that. Like, yeah. that's what create it creates even more vagueness, this, like, time. I mean, moreover, just amount of works. Now you also have time. Yeah. compounding the problem. Yep. So. so, all right. 
I should, I'll be fair to your time. We've been recording for an hour. <laughs> We've been on the phone for almost an hour and a half. Um, yeah. My other, my other question was, is, was the incarnation inevitable? Um, Athanasius has this line where he says that um, while he was uncreate, the creatures had, uh, the creatures been made of naught, and while he was incorporeal, men had been fashioned to lower in the body, and because in every way the things made fell short of being able to comprehend and know their maker, uh, taking pity, I saw, I say, on the race of men, and as much as he is good, he left them destitute of the knowledge of him. Oh, so he did not leave them destitute. Um, this is chapter 11. Basically, he has this argument where it seems to say that unless Christ, or unless the word became incarnate, um, humans would never be able to fully know or understand God. So it sort of raises this question, which will will reappear with uh, medieval theologians. It will reappear uh, several times. But the question being, was the Logos always going to be incarnate? Um, And it's an unanswerable question, but yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I think in one sense it's unanswerable. But I mean, I do think – I think that's right. I think he needed to be. I think it was – I mean, I think of John chapter one, right? No man knows God at any, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God has declared him. And I think the implication from that, I mean, you don't necessarily need to take that to mean necessity, but I always have that, that there's such a chasm between us and God that it is impossible. And so God must become a man, must take on which for me is one of the main reasons why I'm so against Arianism. I mean, the idea that Jesus, if Jesus was not God become man, then we still don't know God. That's the way it seems to me. So I, I do take that argument uh, as, as a good one. And I, I, I agree with the conclusion. I will say just as an addendum, uh, and I'll let Trevor talk about this as well if he wants, but I will say as an addendum, he has a lot of weird arguments in this book like arguing for things that I just wouldn't have occurred to me to even argue for. Like, uh, I mean, I, I wish I could think of an example off the top of my head. Um, yeah. It was like reasons for the incarnation where like he, he had to like give explanations that were strange. Yeah. Yeah. He gave some, yeah, he did. He gave some strange explanations for, for that, that were rooted in stuff that it wouldn't have even been a question of mine to raise. Like, Oh, oh like for instance, I, I just thought of one. He said, why, you know, why must Jesus die by a cross why couldn't he have died of old age and i mean it's he went a a route that seemed very weird to me it seemed it it seems to me just a given that he was going to be um dying willfully and sacrificially he just raised some interesting strange questions that hadn't occurred to me and gave some strange answers i'm imagining yeah when i read like a lot of the things like he also defended why he died publicly and and shameful way things like this yeah, the publicly one. He, yeah. why, people ask, why did he die publicly? And in my thought, I'm like, nobody's asking why he died publicly. Like, who's asking that question? So that's where I thought <laughs> he must have had people actually yeah, asking that's, Yeah, you're right. You're right. He must have, yeah. <laughs> and it must have, these must have been questions of his day that were important. Like, yeah. people go, whoa, why was it? And so, and also it's kind of a cool, sometimes you see, I think older just, I would, even though this guy isn't properly probably called a philosopher, like, you just see in general people in like old style arguments often do the shotgun approach as well, yeah. where it's just like, here's a ton of arguments explaining everything. And that way it's like, I have this really good cumulative case. Even if you don't agree, even if you assign low probabilities to all these premises, you're like, 
but it's a giant cumulative case that makes it just more likely. So yeah, well, and you know, fair enough. It, it seems like yeah. a lot of these theologians are doing the cumulative yeah. case approach. I would add too, based on what you just said, I think a lot of these points he made are very cultural. Like he asked the question, and I brought up a second ago, why on a cross? Which again, I don't think is a question that comes into our minds, but very often. But it was culturally an accursed thing yeah. <clears throat> to cry to die on a cross. That was. Like, you were considered a cursed being. It was bad. I, I think of a, a medieval romance that I read called uh, The Knight of the Cart by Chrétien de Troyes, in which Lancelot, King Arthur's famed knight, rides in a cart because he's chasing a bad guy. And he immediately is cursed because it is a curse to ride in a cart. And the reason <laughs> is, is because people, if you've seen Braveheart, for instance, in the Middle Ages, would be led to execution in a cart. So just the fact he saw he was chasing after a bad guy who had kidnapped the queen, he's on his horse, his horse dies, he needs to ride, and he sees somebody with a cart, so he rides in the cart. When that happens, he is humiliated. But the point is he will accept any humiliation to save the, to save the queen. Wow. And so it's funny how culture can kind of bring that in, and I think that's what we saw here. He had a lot of questions that were rooted in a culture that we don't, like, we can't comprehend. It, oddly enough, like, we live in a culture where only good things are associated with crucifixion <laughs> because yeah. of Jesus' cross, Yeah, when, which is pretty preposterous when you think about it. But Yeah, like, it gives blessings. And, you know. yeah. Anyway. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with one more podcast on Athanasius and his work, The Orations Against the Arians.